Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater and moderator for you this morning. Today is Sunday, June 14, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, June 12th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,799. That's 14799. And the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,800. That's 14800. This morning, A Vision for You presents Chapter 9, The Family Afterward. It's often said, nothing in life gives us more joy than relationships, and nothing in life challenges us more than relationships. Relationships are our ultimate challenge for the same reason that they are our ultimate joy. Relationships, especially with family members, are about growing Stretching, changing, expanding, and giving. They are about showing unselfishness and love. This process, when sincerely engaged in, challenges every fiber of our being. No role can catalyze inner growth more than the roles of spouse, parent, child, or friend. When we were in our disease of compulsive overeating, we created circumstances due to our selfishness and self-centeredness, which wrought all kinds of damage and all kinds of pain. Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. The family afterward, found on page 122 of the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous, describes the many challenges and readjustments facing the family of the recovered alcoholic. There are new skills of communication to develop and new attitudes to practice. The big book stresses the importance of living by spiritual principles, principles such as tolerance, understanding, and love as a means of restoring trust and integrity with family members. This morning, three recovered compulsive overeaters will share their experience, bringing to life Chapter 9, The Family Afterward, threaded together with the instructions of the text, this morning, we have Kathy Jo P. as panelist number one from Minnesota, Leon B. from South Carolina, and Melanie C., who resides in Oregon. It's with great appreciation and with pleasure that we'll get started with panelist number one, Kathy Jo P. Welcome, Kathy Jo. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, my Overeaters Anonymous family. My name is Kathy Jo P, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Minneapolis. I am both honored to share about the family afterwards 
and at the same time, I am very humbled, as for certain, I have not arrived. On page 124, it says, This painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. I'm hoping by sharing today that I will be helpful to others. I'm grateful to God and to this program for all the ways that God has and continues to transform my life, my family, and my relationships. On page 130, it says that this dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. And I can for sure say that God has been working in my life and in my family. I grew up in a family of addiction. My dad was a gambler with weight issues and had a big temper. My mom was a dietitian, was very thin, and had a strong faith. At age nine, my family became very focused on my weight. I went on many diets while my family put much emphasis on my body and what I was eating or not eating. When I got to college in the 80s, I found Overeaters Anonymous. Basically, I plugged the jug. I did not work the steps as outlined in the big book. Instead, I spent a lot of time digging into my family of origin, trying to figure out why I was a compulsive overeater and why I was so broken. One thing I can say for certain today is my family system did not make me a compulsive overeater. None of my brothers or sisters are compulsive overeaters. I am a compulsive overeater because I'm a compulsive overeater. I left OA after seven years, and shortly afterwards, I met my knight in shining armor, who got the job to fill my great big God hole. I don't think my husband knew what he had signed up for. Now I'll fast forward 19 years later, married with an eight-year-old and 10-year-old. I landed in food treatment, weighing more than 300 pounds, while Jerry went to drug treatment. In the doctor's opinion on page XXIV, I'll read, let them stand with us while on the firing line. See the tragedies the despairing wives, the little children. We were not a happy household. There was a lot of pain. The word divorce was mentioned frequently. There was a lot of uproar and a lot of brokenness. Again, after I went through that food treatment, I pretty much plugged the jug, but this time I left the lid even a bit looser. I did not surrender to all my alcoholic foods, and I was not working the steps. I was stuck on that crazy hamster wheel, and I was getting nowhere. My marriage was at a bottom. We both had given up addictions and substances, but I, for one, had not done the spiritual work of this program, which resulted in me being even more miserable. I was full of contempt and anger. A few weeks before I found this meeting, we went to a new therapist, probably our eighth therapist together in our relationship. Every single therapist prior to her would say, I really like you two together. I wish you'd be nicer to each other. This therapist did not even mention she liked us together. I literally think our love was running out. We were running on empty. As my husband sat on the couch, he said to the therapist, 
I only stay in this marriage to protect the children from Kathy. I remember the fear and devastation. He was not talking about physical abuse. He was talking about the way that I treated the kids, the put-downs, the control, the anger, the yelling. I was like a Captain Von Trapp. On page 82, I'll read, the alcoholic is like a tornado, ruining his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Six weeks later, I was totally abstinent, working on step four with a Vision for You sponsor, and we sat on the same couch, and Jerry announced, I am no longer in this marriage to protect the kids from Kathy. Kathy has changed so much. I worked all the steps. I made 61 amends. A few months after I made amends to my daughter, she was 14 years old, she said, Mom, you made your amends, but you're still the same. I mean, like, if 10 were the worst and you were like, you were like a 9 before, now you're just like a 6. You haven't even changed. I don't even know why you bothered doing your amends. I remember thinking, praise God, this is working. Another time we went out to dinner and there were five of us, so the waitress brought a flimsy folding chair for the end of our booth. I sat in the chair because I used to always have to have the best seat, the front row. And God told me, sit in the folding chair. My daughter said, Mom, you look funny sitting in that chair. She wasn't used to me not taking the back seat or not taking the best seat. Now, I often take the back seat, let my son ride in the front because it helps me. On page 22, it says we need a readjustment and deflation. What that means to me is my ego needs to be smashed. That hope happens only by doing this work, all the steps, being of service, having that window open to God where I hear God say, get in the back seat. When I made amends to my father-in-law, he said, I've never seen you so tender, and he began to cry. I have many fond memories with my mother-in-law after the amends I made to her before her death a year ago. We would end our visits with me kissing her on the cheek. I am so grateful for the healing in my relationship with my father-in-law, who is now in an Alzheimer's unit. For the first 28 years of my relationship with my husband, my in-laws would take him out for a birthday lunch, and I was never invited. I would complain to him, my sisters, my friends, and say, I just don't get it. Don't you think I should have the privilege of being invited? Three years ago, I got the invitation to start attending those lunches. At first, I thought, wow, it's about time that they got the memo to invite me. I realize now I earned an invitation. I became more pleasant company to be around. I did not show up talking about myself the whole time and bringing up controversial or negative topics. Before I did this work, I was not a helpful person. When I went to family meals or events, I would relax <laughs> and lay on the couch, literally, I think the first time I did the pots and pans after Easter dinner, I thought they were supposed to clap. 
I think they thought, wow, she finally did something. I might have finally caught up in service because I get thank yous now. I'm a part of the clan. My son requested me to chaperone his band trip two years ago, two years in a row, at ages 17 and 18. We literally slept on the bus two nights on a five-day road trip. That was another privilege I earned. Five years ago, if you would have asked me about my mother, I would have told you, when she dies, I will not grieve our relationship. I will grieve what I did not get, and I would grit my teeth. Do you know what I mean? I am so grateful that this program gave me the tools and the opportunity to realize for me to have the healing in my relationship with my mother, I needed to love her. I have nothing but fondness and appreciation for my mother today. This past October, I learned that I needed to have open heart surgery due to a childhood defect. At first, I felt abandoned by God, but then I realized God had relieved me of 115 pounds to make the surgery safer. My dear 84-year-old mother came and took care of me for 12 days as I recovered. Right before she left for her 10-hour bus trip back to Omaha at 6 in the morning, she hugged me goodbye and she said, God kept you alive because you have a lot of work to do. I said, yeah, Mom. Like, what kind of work do I have to do? She said, to teach people to be nicer and to have faith. For my mom, who, wasn't, who, who I wasn't nice to, to think that I could teach others to be nicer is a total miracle. I did a second fifth step in regards to my husband and our relationship and formal amends to him, to him about two years ago. That deeper work created a big shift in our relationship. Let's just say we used to wake up, both of us, on the wrong side of the bed, and we would start arguing right now, right away. Today, my husband brings me coffee in bed, often with a hug. Our relationship continues to transform. About two years ago, my hairstylist of 12 years said, What's going on with you and Jerry? You never complain about him anymore. That's another testimony of the power of God in this program. On page 120, 125, and 127, it talks about the family working towards tolerance, love, and understanding. On page 127, it defines it as spiritual understanding. In the... In, in the big book, it talks about how we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Now, when I have conflict with my husband, when I think he's cross with me, even if he calls me a name, I got to look at how did I step on his toes? What did I do? Rather than react to his anger, I look at how can I clean my side of the street and get a shift in our relationship. I still struggle at times doing my 10 steps and amends promptly, especially with my family. There's been a couple times where my husband and I were not doing well, and maybe we had two days where we were both mad at each other. I finally do my 10 step. I'm postured ready to do amends to him when all of a sudden a happy customer comes to the door and I hear him belt out, honey, I'm home. It's like the universe shifts and the heavens open up and the sunlight of the spirit comes through. 
it makes my amends a lot easier. It doesn't always happen that way, but it's happened a few times where I literally, my mouth is on the ground. Before I did this work, I was not a helpful person when events, etc., happened with my family. Oh, I realize I already shared that part. I am so sorry. Um, shortly before my open heart surgery, I was disturbed, and I noticed the dog poop in the backyard was not getting cleaned up. I called someone and I did a 10-step. And when I got to the part, God, please keep remove from me morbid reflection, retaliation, and help me to be of service to Jerry. I heard, you need to clean up the dog poop more often than not. So now I clean up dog poop contently. I called a fellow one day and I said, I really don't like having sex lately. Do I have to have sex? She said, Kathy Joe. Do you vacuum when you don't want to vacuum? On page 132, it says, but we are not a glum lot. When Charlie was five years old, he got off the bus one day and he said, Mommy, teach me to be happy. It was one of the moments where I literally was stopped in my tracks, like when I didn't fit in the ride at the amusement park, when I found out my husband was using again just literally where I didn't even want to be in my skin. Charlie said, Mommy, teach me to be happy. I was so disturbed by that because I wasn't happy and I did not know how to be happy. On, one, on page 133, it said God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Today, not only can I teach my kids to be happy by my example, but I can teach others to be nicer, happy, joyous, and free. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathy Joe, for sharing your experience with us. Now I welcome panelist number two, Leon B. Good morning. This is uh, Leon B. Uh, gratefully recovered, calling from Simpsonville, South Carolina. Wow. Um, I just had a shot, an instant jolt in my program with Leia's opening and Kathy Joe's um, share. Um, I don't even know which direction I'm going to go in now. Um, I will say um, when Leia asked me to do this, um, I instantly said yes, but my feelings at the time um, – did not want to. Um, there's a lot going on in the world with a pandemic and the social unrest. And I bought a puppy for my daughter turning eight and puppy's been sick since day one in and out of the hospital. Just all kind of emotions going on right now. Um, but I knew saying yes, I would have to dive a little bit deeper because I don't want to come on here and not you know, share something that's going to be of help to someone. Um, I have been recovered since uh, April 30th, 2018, um, I first came into OA in 2005. I spent 13 years trying to find my own way. Um, I, I learned about this condition. I never worked the steps during those 13 years. I tried a lot of tool work. Um, I really was not out of ideas. I knew there had to be another way to lose this weight and did not want to admit that I was a compulsive overeater. Um, and spent many, many years in and out of the rooms, up and down in weight. Um, and I did a lot of damage to my family oh, over those 13 years. 
Um, and when I finally worked these steps, when I finally came back, I was surrendered. I was I was waving the white flag. This was the last house on the block. I had tried everything. I was considering weight loss surgery. I just wanted to get this weight off. I didn't even realize the the other real pressing issues, the bedevilments that were going on in my life. And when I worked these steps, I realized that I was the creator of most of my trouble and my misery. I was the maker. And doing my step eights and step nine was, was tough. I heard things that I did not want to hear. And um, and I started sponsoring and realized I had mama problems. And, and I thought my mama problems would be the biggest problems in my life. And once I forgave her and did a ninth step over it, and really, really did some four-step work over her. Our relationship is is beautiful. It really is, and I'm not going to even talk about that. Um, but I, I was overcome with fear once I didn't have the mama issues anymore. I was like, oh my God, this has like been the biggest thing that has been bugging me in my life. Obviously, something greater is about to come. Um, and, yeah, I mean, once you're out of the food, I rode the pink cloud for a nice year. Oh, I lost weight. Oh, I love shopping. Oh, I can shop online. Oh, and you get compliments. And all. I mean, I rode that pink cloud for a long time. Reality set in that I had some deep emotional <laughs> inebriety is, is what they say, I believe. And I didn't realize how my mind is so messed up. So let's get into the family afterwards. You know, we actually finished this chapter yesterday in my local face-to-face meeting, and the last four paragraphs I think we read, and and I'm listening on the Zoom, and I can't really chime in because I'm mowing the church's lawn. And we get on page 134. um, The top of the third paragraph says, in time they will see that he is a new man, and in their own way they will let him know it. So I began to think about this interaction that I had with my wife um, I had the other week. Now, my share is going to be surrounded by my family. Because like Leah said, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a brother. I am a son. I am a healthcare worker, you know, and this is training ground. This has been some serious training ground for me. So thinking about this new man thing, I began to think about this interaction that I had with my wife the other week. So she leans over to me and she says, I'm getting ready to ask you a question. And because she has to prepare me. So she asked me the question and I answered it. And I said, why did you feel like you, you had to prepare me to answer this question? Well, she said, well, you know how you are. Sometimes you'll just blow up. Now, I'm two years in program and I'm really wanting to emotionally get better. And as it says on page 127, the second paragraph, it says, since the home has suffered more than anything else, it is well that a man exert himself there. He is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness under his own roof. No, unselfishness and love under his own roof. We know there are difficult wives and families, but the man who is getting over alcoholism, that's me, must remember he did much to make them so. It's ouch. 
you know, and I'm internally I'm telling her, please give me a chance to work this program. And I immediately went into self-pity thinking about this. I'm like, why is she still not seeing me as a new man? Don't get me wrong. My my wife, she physically can see the difference. And she had said time and time to me, you are a great husband. You are a wonderful father. And for some reason with my magical magnifying mind and my, and I have to have this perfect, I have to follow these things like perfectly. I, I, I bring these type of stress on myself. But on the bottom of 122, and, and this is what comforted me while going through this chapter. The, there was there's this overarching theme in my eyes. On the bottom of 122, it says, years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. Don't get me wrong. She can see, like I said, she can see I'm physically different. But I've learned something in this chapter, and because years of living with me, I will not tell you the things I did to this beautiful woman. I used to pick fights with her, and I told the story before, just so she would go to bed. It was so easy to make my wife go to sleep. i just pick a fight. She'll get mad, storm off, got the entire first floor to myself. I can go to the kitchen, grab as much ice cream as I want, as much cookies as I want, and I can veg out watching whatever all night till 1, 2 in the morning. This was a regular years of living with an alcoholic. So what I learned in this chapter is that this thing takes time. My wife and my children, they're, they're my training ground. And one of the first things that I noticed, while my higher power, he, he's working on me, and he's trying to make me what he wants me to be, on page 121, excuse me, 122, first paragraph, it says, all members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. This involves a process of deflation, a process. This thing takes time. Process, a series of actions or steps taken in order to achieve a particular end. Third paragraph, towards the bottom, same page number. Let the families realize as they are starting their journey, that all will not be fair weather. Their journey, Leon, the journey is an act of traveling from one place to another. This thing takes time. Page 123, third third paragraph toward the bottom. It will take time to clear away the wreck. Further, Further down, though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures the new structures will take years to complete. Next paragraph. Father knows he is to blame. It may take him many seasons of hard work to be restored financially, but he shouldn't be reproached. Perhaps he will never have much money again, but the wise family will admire him for what he is trying. I think you get the point here. Rather than what he what he is trying to be rather than what he is trying to get. I get it. I get it. This is a long process, just as Leia said. Much work needs to be done. Page, page 127, the first paragraph. The head of the house ought to remember that he is mainly to blame for what befell the home. He can scarcely square the account in his lifetime. That those readings, this chapter, that helped me. Leon, if you, you only been two years at this. And you want to be honest, you only really been one year trying to deal with the emotional part 
and I hear about this, you know, five years, seven years, 13, you have different different levels and different things are going to come your way. So those those sentences, those reassuring lines in this book has really helped. It sounds kind of somber, you know, but this is a process of transformation. And these steps are just guides to progress. And as it says in how it works, we, we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. And I hope I'm quoting that right. So I have, I got, I see how much time I got. Okay. All right. So I have been gratefully recovered, like I said, for over two years. And I'm getting ready to celebrate 19 years of marriage at the end of this month. I have four kids, three boys um, and one girl. My boys are 26 and 25 and a nine-year-old. And I have an eight-year-old daughter who's really going on 20. Anyway, so this is my third marriage, you know, um, considering the first two lasted less than a year, I, I think this, we're, we're, this marriage, <laughs> we're going to make it. Uh, my two older boys, um, they're nine months apart, and I'm being very honest on this. Line. I'm going to let you know where I am and where I have come from and where I am going. My two older boys are nine months apart, and they're by different women, you know, neither of which I was married to. Uh, my first wife was a woman that I met. I was having an affair. She ended up. She was having an affair. She was married. She divorced her husband, took her kids, came to me and said, I'm all yours now, and I felt obligated. I was 22, 23. She was a lot older than I was, and we were married, and that didn't last long. I met a second woman. While I married to my first wife, I ended up meeting this next young lady, and right shortly after I was divorced, I was married again for the second time. Meanwhile, I have these two boys these two boys that I brought into this world. And it didn't take long to realize it, it was not these women. It was me. And I found religion July 1st, 1998. My second marriage ended in 1999, and my life went into a whole new religious trajectory. And my boys, they were five and four at that time. And I swore that these kids would not be men like me. I was, I was thinking rightly. My mind was, was sharp. I said, I'm going to give them the opportunities I never had. They're going to have cars at age 16, trips to the beach, nice clothes to wear. They're going to have an option to go to college. My mother forced me into the military. And I had accomplished all of that. I had this fixed idea that these boys would graduate college, get these nice jobs, have nice places they live in, in the finest apartments or houses somewhere in Chicago. They would have these friends and go out and have beers on the weekend. Did I not think like Bill? I sure did. You know, and I, I pushed them. I pushed them, never really asking what they wanted. So you fast forward all those thir those 13 years. You fast forward that I was not recovered. 2018, thinking I gave them everything I didn't have. And as I'm going through the steps, you know, I, I get to step nine with my boys. You know, and my oldest told me with everything that I had given them, he, the one thing he said I didn't give him enough was hugs. Crush me to my core. The other son, my other son told me, man, we don't have the time. <laughs> but eventually he sat down and he recounted what he, what it was like growing up with my raging, my beating him for eating my Oreos. You all have heard my Oreo story, you know, and I thought we had an understanding after that, you know, I let them get it out. And I thought we were moving in the right direction. And all of a sudden they wanted a second chance. They wanted to do step nine again. <laughs> so I let them get it out again. You know, and they went on and how they always felt like they had to measure up. And think about it. I set standards for them. And when they were not meeting these standards, 
I would go off on them. I, I I was tired. I had I was like a puppet. If they didn't do what they wanted me, if I wanted them to do, I would go off on them. And they said they would they they went over and over said we never felt like we measured up. That nothing we did was ever good enough for you. You know, and I let them get it out again that second time. And so going back to the text, it says it will take time to clear away the wreckage. And we are replacing the old buildings with finer ones. And I keep in mind the new structures will take years to complete. This sentence gives me, it gives me comfort. So now I get it. I get it. I had these these perfectionistic dreams. And when these boys did not live up to them, it made me rage. I got it. Oh, I got it. What is the second model at the end of this at the end of this chapter? It says live and let live. I called one of my brothers to to, to do a ten step, you know, because I so now my sons are telling me that they want to this was before everything's been going on, before COVID and everything. They, they told me they live here in Greenville, uh, close to me. They told me that they wanted to move to Atlanta and I immediately my insides just ached because I wanted them near me, and I, and I felt like they were leaving because I had done something. I mean, just when I'm recovered and I'm doing well, we're doing better, they, they want to get up and go. And so I, I, I did a step 10, and I, and I called my, my step 10 buddy. I, I told him what, what my resentment was, that they weren't following my script. I wanted them to stay. They weren't doing life like I wanted them to. But the, the key is that I didn't tell them any of this. Before, I would go off on them and tell them what they should do. I picked up the phone and called somebody. I told them I was being selfish because I wanted them to do what I wanted them to do, never giving them the option to be themselves, to fulfill God's will for their lives. I had fear that I was a bad father, that I would be seen as a a bad father, in fear that something would happen to them if they didn't turn their life around. And 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 I had dishonesty. Is that that the that I have really two of the they are just sweet boys, sweet boys that God could have ever given me. They have jobs, they have an apartment together, they have dogs, they have their own dreams. And as it says on page 133, we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. That's not just for alcoholics, that's just that's for everybody. And I know God wants them to be happy, joyous, and free. And I had to turn that fear over. I cried with him because I did not want them to go, because, and partly because I felt so much guilt that I had messed these boys up. And with all this social unrest, I, and Leo, I'm coming to the end. With all this social unrest that's going on, I asked the boys to go away from to go away from me to the mountains. You know, they they know I like staying in nice places because I was in the military and I lived in some deplorable conditions. So if I have an opportunity, I like to stay in nice places. So we're in this place in Asheville, and when I when I drive to pick them up, they look totally different. They got nice clothes on. One got a haircut. You know, and they said, well, you know, we, we wanted to look nice to you because we know how you are about our presentation. Again, give me a chance to work this thing. Well, we had the greatest time, the greatest talk. You know, they're moving to Atlanta in two weeks in the middle of a deadly pandemic, in the middle of all this social unrest. And I'm not going to lie. I don't want them to go. I offered them my basement, no strings attached, until all this blows over. And they didn't say, hell no. They just said, Dad, we'll, we'll think about it. But I know what that means. You know, and in our conversation, you know, we started talking about this whole thing about my prestigious dreams for them and my lofty goals, and, you know, we, we got into that all over again, and um, and I apologized again, told them to live, their, they have to live their lives. And my oldest son, Dad, my oldest son said, you know, Dad, when you were explaining the steps to me, you talked about how you had never looked at what your part was in your screw-ups, and I've been doing that lately. Yep, you and Mom 
probably could have done this a better way, bringing me into this world. But I now realize that as an adult, I'm, I'm responsible for my own mistakes. And that's helped me take responsibility for my life. He saved up, bought himself a car, has a secure job in Atlanta, and now he's doing well. And I'll leave you with this last thought. I called Charles H. last night because I was going through some things, and he helped me with this. On page 133, he reminded me of this. Page 133 says, but it is clear that we made our own misery. God didn't do it. Avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery. But if trouble comes, I'm sorry, that's my timer. It said, but if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. He hit me with that. He said, Leon, let God demonstrate through you. Let God, your higher power, demonstrate his power through you. And I hope that helps someone. And remember that this thing takes time. And I pass. Thank you so much, Leon B., for sharing with us this morning. I now welcome panelist number three, Melanie C. Thank you very much. And perhaps uh, you'll listen to hear that I'm going to try to focus on a couple of paragraphs in the family afterwards. It'll be on page 122, paragraph three, and then page 123, paragraph two. It'll be the fifth line down in that area until the end of that particular paragraph. Good morning. My name is Melanie C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. November 4th, 2005 was the last day that I found it necessary to stuff food down, copious amounts of food down into my mouth, trying to get a sense of ease and comfort. I was almost 300 pounds and climbing. Thank God, because of the miracle of neutrality around food, I've been able to maintain a weight loss of over 165 pounds for almost 14 years now. Before this day, I did not know what the heck was wrong with me. I was 49 right snuggling up to age 50 years old, half a century of life built primarily around compulsive overeating and the effects of an untreated addiction that bled over into all of my relationships and more so with those that I love. I'm still showing up for class. Treatment continues anew each day for me, for my relationships. I have a father and a stepmother that are still living as well as an older sister and a younger brother. I have an adult son, a couple of nephews. My cousins that I have are many, but I've never met them because my family has been estranged all of my entire life. Never met my mother's parents for that same reason. I have a grandson and his stepsister who is a teenager that we lovingly refer to as our granddaughter, as well as an impending birth of his half-sister that we will be delighted to add to our family. And to accurately round out this picture, I have two non-blood related sisters that I adore that are now adults, but we were child- that, that were the children of my mother's very, very precious best friend. We were raised together at all as sisters all of my life long. Yet before, the, before us four girls got through our high school years, our mothers were no longer speaking. They were truly, truly best friends. Minus my mother and her friend, which I lovingly referred to as my aunt, That was her very, very best friend who are deceased now. This is a snapshot of those that are currently living. We are definitely a bit ragtag. Who knew that appointing myself the moral compass for this family would be so offensive? For years and years, I would show up and deluge them all with unsolicited harsh advice and requirements. This is how they should be. This is how it should go. Or, you know what? For years, I wouldn't show up at all. I was a dark, difficult child teenager, and adult. 
There was always some sort of fuss or scuffle going on, and the common denominator seemed to be me, although I wouldn't recognize that or admit it. But you see that they are all, in my mind, I would say, but you see that they are all the sick ones, and they need me. I've got the backbone. I have the principles. I do not drink. I don't cuss. I don't smoke. I don't do all the things that these people do. I don't cheat on my taxes. Or do I? Putting the pieces back together again has been different than what I had originally imagined when I first came to the recovery rooms of Overreaches Anonymous. First of all, I thought that in my family all would be so thrilled to engage in what I was doing and would be open to receiving all the wisdom that came from the fellows and the recovery that had helped me so much. Because by all appearances, I was not the only person afflicted with the disease of addiction, and so I, so I decided... Second, I was convinced that the change in me was so obvious all would gather around to receive me like the prodigal daughter, sister, cousin, aunt, wife, and mother. Page 122, paragraph 3. Let me read that here. Cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained, abnormal condition. Years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. The entire family is, to some extent, ill. Let's uh, let families realize as they start their journey that all will not be fair weather. Each in his turn may be foot sore and may straggle. There will be alluring shortcuts and bypass down which they may wander and lose their way. Starting at line five on paragraph one on page 123. But the head of the house has spent years in pulling down the structures of business, romance, friendship, health. These things are now ruined or damaged. It will take time to clear away the wreck. The old buildings will eventually be placed, replaced by finer ones. The new structures will take years to complete. A good picture and instructive. My family loves me very much and not too much has changed within the main structure of my extended family, quite frankly. With recovery, there has been a true desire to devote myself to living an amended life with each of them at a pace that is comfortable for them as well as they as long and as well as they live their life free from the bondage of me. The two relationships that I want to tell you about today involve my darling dear husband and my ex daughter in law. First my husband. We have been a couple for over thirty one years. We met while we were both working in emergency services. As we met He was charming, attentive, helpful, available, and a good friend to my 11-year-old son. All was great for quite a while. He was always on the ready to do whatever, whenever, however. He proposed to me on a Saturday visit while I was in a sequestered residential treatment center. That should tell you something. Years go by, and minus the incredibly sad details, this very available, charming, wonderful man withdrew little by little by little never stopped showing up or showing love, but he was clearly confused and starting to show signs of subservience. Near the end, nothing he did was enough, and I told him so regularly in various ways. He traveled across the U.S. weekly to meet his clients to make a living for his family, back and forth, east coast to west coast, east coast to west coast, flying out 4 a.m. Monday morning and returning Friday night, midnight, to find that the house was a wreck. The kids attended. Um, The kids, I mean by that, we were raising my brother's small boys because he was in jail and an an addict. Imagine that. 
I was hysterical and unkempt. He had to play fun guy and motivator, trying to pull us all back together again before he needed to leave on Monday. He became a shell of a person. The laughter was gone, absolutely gone. Recovery, a clear mind, the 12 steps, service, and the fellowship saved him. Who was under this treatment? It was me. It saved us. Because of the power and the inpouring into my life, there has been an ability to turn his life back over to him. Take my hands off. The treatment was mine, and he has come to life. He is beyond the man that I met 31 years ago. He has a leadership in our family and our home that I learned from. I always had, quite frankly, the entire time as I look back. He has a spirit and a strength that I truly admire. He has been a model for me from the very, very beginning. I know who, who the sick one is, and when there is a disturbance, I have learned that it is not him. It is within. We recently bought a farm, and to watch him out there is absolutely thrilling to me. I have fallen in love with him all over again, and sometimes pinch, pinch myself thinking, how on earth did I get so lucky? Did I get so lucky? You should have seen me the day that I met him and the moment that he proposed to me in treatment center. <laughs> it has its roller coaster moments inside me because I am not finished with life as an addict in treatment. The 12 steps applied attacked, attacked my self-centeredness, which is an addict's term for narcissism, and it attacked it perfectly. My hubby is a free man, and I adore watching him grow outside of my clutches. Next would be my, ex, my dear ex-daughter-in-law. She um, is the next one to profile here. My son blew up their marriage. It was a catastrophe of epic proportions, tore her apart, pitted us against each other. And I thought to myself where I needed to be because I reasoned that after all, he was my son. I needed to be there for him. Even if, even if all the things that I knew, the things that were happening, even if my loyalties lie there, right? That's where I would need to go. Let me help him. I'm the one that's recovered. I have so much to offer. I can fix this deal. She was eight weeks pregnant with our first grandchild when I learned that my son was in quite a mess and living outside the home and away in another state. I hadn't known that before. thought the relationship was fine. She had called him up to give him the news that she was pregnant, and they decided to pull it together and make it work all behind the scenes that we didn't know. And then she would gather us all up together to share the good news of the impending delivery by the stork, our first grandchild. I thought I'd never be a grandparent. I was in my 60s by then. I was over the moon. Things of flurry and hopes running high. I was all into this business about having baby and how much I love and delighted in them and how I could support their relationship. And then we learned. The fire just would not be put, be put out and, in fact, was more dangerously out of control. And the police and incarceration stepped in and we finally learned of the state of their marriage. I ran to the rescue, as you could imagine. Recovered. Recovered, right? Mind you. And again, the details of how this played out are just awful. She was sure that she would never be able to speak to me again and was certain that she needed to protect her unborn child from the two of us. We were so evil, she thought. 
I did not think honestly that I was going to ever get through this. I was just stunned and breathless and, and in shock. I was imagining life with this little life out there in the world with never knowing him or me, him never knowing me. I am hard ex- pressed to explain the pain. It's clearly not too far from the surface. I was sure that I was balancing the two with a, with, in a loving me- middle when I was working with both of them. How blind that I could still be, even recovered. I had gotten a lot of help from my fellows and, and the program of recovery, and things began to calm down, although my dear daughter-in-law was still not, not able to speak to me. I didn't move a step or an inch without consulting with my higher power, the 12 steps and the fellows that poured so much into my life. As you might imagine, my son was not able to hold things together when they were in this precious new stages of birthing and baby and mending their relationship, and he blew more. He blew up, blew it up more and more and more. I finally had to withdraw my support from him. It felt like this was going to just kill me. I learned to be patient while I ached. I learned to have humility and make amends while I was torn up inside and my head was raging. When I saw my dear daughter-in-law, I was respectful and as loving as she would allow me to be. We worked, all three worked in the same office. My son was now under investigation for a felony weapons charge, and the very company that we all worked for called my dear daughter-in-law and I into conference about my son and their plan to let him go, and was asking if there were any reasons why that, why that we knew of that he found himself in this sort of place, so that perhaps something could be salvaged from his job. I attended this conference, but I only listened. This is her time, her agony and her husband. I'm a guest here. The program taught me, and your compassionate help brought me through. She handled herself with grace and dignity and compassion for my son and her husband during this meeting. There was a loving plan that was worked out. After the meeting, she came up to me, hugged me around the neck, and wept. We both wept. It melted away the icy wall between us. She was very generous to me, absolutely generous to me, radiant, glowing. The family afterwards. I truly had not seen her but to pass by once in a blue moon until that moment. And of her own volition, she assured me during that time that we that we had a grandson on the way. As you can tell, I didn't deserve this. This disease takes a horrible turn, a horrible, horrible toll on families, and that we were going to be grandparents. She is a much better person than I am. (laughs) It took an army of fellows and the 12 steps to cut through this disease head of mine so that I would do not do anything impulsively stupid. I would keep my mouth closed and honor her in every way. You help me reconcile with my dear daughter-in-law. As you can tell, it's very precious for me now, this family afterwards and the directions that you see in this book. Very precious to me. We care for our grandson every day of the business week and have had so and have had him since he was two days old and he's three and a half years old now. 
She is happily remarried, and as, as I mentioned at the top, she has a teenage stepdaughter that we call our own, and we are expecting another delivery from the stork in mid-October. Three months ago, she came to me crying to tell me that she was not able to choose her own birth mother and her own birth father, and she purposefully has chosen my husband and I to be her parents that she seeks me out for advice and for guidance, and she respects me greatly. She loves that we are the model and the example for her children and for she and her new husband. She has asked us to be the grandparents of this new addition and any further special deliveries. This is our ex-daughter-in-law. I almost missed this deal, y'all. I almost screwed these families up. First, my family of my childhood. Next, the marriage that I had driven him into the ground. And third, the relationship with my dear daughter-in-law. I simply use this term for clarity. I no longer refer to her as anything but my daughter, to her and to anybody else. Some continued good news here. My four sister siblings and I, we have a weekly phone call that we adhere to and respect every single week in order for us to continue to build and, and, and structure our relationship. My sister and I, my blood sister and I, we have a phone call twice a week with my stepmother because my father can't hear nor see. He's 88 years old and not well, but we make contact where we live far enough apart that we have two weekly phone calls to be able to continue to work out our relationships and bond and be close with each other. I'm doing some very, very, very deep work. This is the piece I want to end on here. Some good, good news with all of this. I'm doing some very deep work with my sponsor and these 12 steps in taking responsibility with the damage and the destruction I had done in my relationship with my adult son, the one that is still troubled. I'm praying for God's will, perhaps a miracle of reconciliation. I pray for his good health, good fortune, and full happiness. But either way, I pray that God will continue to heal our family by me being willing to be turned, renewed, humbled, and freed. Daily, we, my sponsor and my board of directors in recovery, tackle my disease, surrender to the program of recovery, and face down the demons. I have a sponsor, my sponsor has a sponsor, and I sponsor. We run a tight ship against this disease because of the lives of the families it has harmed to rebuild a structure finer by far than what we came, that, that finer than what came tumbling down by my own hand. This is a family disease. I have infected each one. It can take time to restore, but let me assure you, the structure of the applied steps along with the fellowship, along with the, a fellowship, Miracles are promised and we ha- and have happened to me. I truly hope that you have an opportunity to read the, the family afterwards if you haven't. It's informative, instructive, encouraging, and assuring. It's a true loving study of a family afterwards. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Melanie, for sharing your experience and how the instructions of the family afterward have helped you. Thank you, Kathy, Joe, and Leon. All three of you have just touched my heart and truly brought the chapter to life. The panelist contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that, everyone. We will now transition to a question-and-answer segment. You can pose a question to our panelists. I need your name including the first letter of your last name, please. Star one to unmute. 
Well, hold on one second. Star one to unmute. This is Ruby L. I have a question. Ruby L. Wendy M. I hear Wendy, Ruby. Julie E.B. Julie E.B. Katie G. Veronica. Katie G. Veronica. Ginger C. Ginger C. Mo H., I believe, is back there. Thank you. That's a good group. Mo, Mo H. Thank you, Mo. Gotcha. Okay. Everybody mute, please. We'll start with this grouping, beginning with Ruby L., followed by Wendy. Uh, okay, uh, is Roby L? Roby with a long O. Um, Thank you. Re- recovering over eater in Vermont. Um, and I, my question is for really maybe each of the panelists, um, and especially provoked by uh, Melanie C's share, um, is how, any tips on how to? I know I know to avoid the uh, morbid reflection and guilt over. I guess when I hear Melanie C. Uh, say that, you know, it's a disease she has infected um, each member of the family, how do we fight off the um, the self-blame, the self-reproach, the self, um, I guess just that feeling of, mm-hmm. of wanting to, you know, anyway. Morbid reflection. <laughs> morbid reflection. How, how do we that? fight that off? How do you shake that off? Thank you. Thank and, you. And, and, yeah. In the interest of time, perhaps Melanie C., go ahead. Hey, thanks so much. Um, absolutely. That is a, a, a process of going through this situation that tried to plague me as well. And I had lots of good help in fellowship, and I had a four-step to work those things through. And I know that sounds pretty unemotional, but I'm telling you, each time that I was disturbed, it was a reflection of what was going on for me, and I had to stay out of self-pity, and I didn't know how. I wanted to be effective and I wanted to be helpful and I wanted to shift and change and take full responsibility for what I was doing and I didn't know how. The four step brought me to that to be able to see where I was only thinking about myself even in those moments. And then they then after that and did my fifth step, they got me really busy to stay out of my head. So I wasn't thinking and dwelling upon that sort of thing. I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Mel. Did another panelist want to attend to that question as well regarding morbid reflection? This is Kathy Jo P. And, um, well, when my husband said that the only reason he stayed in the marriage was to protect the children from me, I could have stayed in morbid reflection and thought about how horrible I was or how horrible he was for saying that. But because I listened to the voices on the line and heard the hope and recovery of the people that had found a way out, not just physically, but so much more spiritually and the changes in their families, I believed that perhaps it would happen for me too. So I kept busy. I kept in the book. I did what my sponsor told me to do. I did service. And I just kept trusting and relying on God. And sure enough, it happened for me. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you very much, Kathy Jo. Thanks, Roby, for your question this morning. Wendy, 
I didn't catch the first letter of your last name. Good morning. Thank you. I'm I'm Wendy M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm sorry. I keep hitting the... I'm going to take it off speaker. I kept hitting the numbers. I apologize. Um, this has just been so beautiful and a, truly a gift. This morning in, in meditation, I actually heard from my higher power to actually listen to the special edition this morning. Typically, I'm also doing laundry and everything and um, amazing from all three. Um, when these new relationship problems crop up, um, do you find that it's typically a 10th step issue? And was there a time when, um, you know, you realize just because you're recovered that you're not going to be living in utopia, that, that life still keeps coming at you and, and, and kind of realize that? Or did, did it feel like, does it feel like, oh, I'm always going backwards and then got to go forwards? I don't know if that makes sense at all, but that's um, what's coming to me right now. So thank you. Anyone can answer. I learned so much from all three of you. It was beautiful. Thank you, Wendy. Which panelists would like to take that question? Leon B. Go ahead, Leon, please. Um, sometimes it's a great question. Um, sometimes, yes, it is a, a ten-step issue when something comes up with, with these with these new relationships. And most of the time, if I know if I'm not doing ten steps because things will start building up, and and I've made a declaration this year in 2020 to be more aggressive with these 10 steps but i have found um that and 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 i and i didn't know this you honestly have to reach out for help and and i thought i kept doing 10 steps over my um there was a very personal problem with a, a major relationship it was my mom let's just say it and i don't care how many 10 steps i did i that my thinking and how i felt about her was not right it's like i could not call myself a recovered compulsive overeater. I couldn't work these steps and talk to my mother or treat her in the manner or assassinate her character by calling my siblings or spoiling her relationship with her grand. I was like, this is not right. I mean, something, this is beyond a 10th step. I reached out to some more very um, skilled step workers and put me in touch in the right place and i found out this was a fourth this was some deep fourth step work and sometimes you do have to take it back to the fourth step do the work do the fifth step give it away ask for forgiveness you get ready to, to ask for forgiveness ask your creator to take away those character defects then be willing to write out you know i had to write out a step eight i don't like maybe four or five times I didn't know what I was doing. This person said, "You're going to assassin. You're gonna you're gonna crush this person with what you're writing." And I I wrote it over as many times as, as this person asked me to do it until it was until I was taking my part in what was causing all this. I'm telling you, so much freedom came out of that process. I really wanted to push it. I really wanted to rush it, but it took weeks to to do it. And that was just with one relationship. But out of that process came a very oh my god, such such a release that I've never had in my life with, with my mom. And, it, and it's bettered relationships with all of her children and grandchildren out of my obedience. So 
that's what I have to share. Thank you, Leon. Thanks, Wendy M., for the question. Julie E.B., your turn. Recovered in Colorado Springs, but still in the family so much. So I'm so grateful to the honesty and um, authenticity, reality. Um, no glossing over in these shares. My question uh, to any one of you really comes to um, how do you uh, apply yourself to this work in the family, to this practice in the family, without getting um, into yourself well, without getting into that Richard T's resolve or or that self-pity, self-loathing side of kind of ditches. Um, and how do you keep yourself helpful, useful? Um, and uh, yeah, I just really appreciate it. Thank you. Which panelists would like to respond? Uh, Melanie, see? Please go ahead, Melanie. Just looking at the practical things that came up for me um, during this process of six and seven, as I look at this six and seven for sure, um, because I, I eventually learned that it was um, untreated disease that uh, was actually manifesting itself, and the folks that I was around the most um, seemed to give me the most opportunity to be able to see those things come up. It wasn't them at all. So um, I was taught early on um, about the gift of restraint of tongue and pen. You can read a little bit more about that on page 90 and 91 in your uh, 12 and 12 of Alcoholics Anonymous. That wasn't easy to do. You know, um, I had to book in that <laughs> so that I would. Restraint of tongue and pen because I um, was driven to be impulsive and compulsive and explosive and agitated and sarcastic and all those kinds of things. And and so there was a lot of blank air sometimes. It's kind of an odd thing. Or I learned to, here we go, um, uh, book in the fact that I would do a timeout for myself if something got to this or to that. And, and this is a process of things. Um, and to, to say, you know, I'm going to just take some time here and I'll revisit this later or learn how to say that kind of thing. Oh, my gosh, is that possible? Yeah, it did turn out to be possible. Um, as I would ruminate towards things and they weren't even in my presence because I was still projecting out something that was absolutely untreated within, um, I would um, learn how by, this is work that I did with the 12 steps and my sponsors and my board of directors. Um, I, I learned how to capture those thoughts because the first thought is the one that might lead to my second thought, what is action. And so I didn't want it to get to that point. Learn how to bookend uh, capturing the first thought and, and pushing it aside and, and so that I might be able to see the world and be awakened to reality. I had delusional thinking. Um, all the gnawing and the yawing and all the things I was doing, you were doing this, yeah, yeah, yammer, yammer, never was them. And to feed that enlarged it. And so all this stuff was practical application to, I'm just using use the terms that I use at my house, so I could suffocate and smother it so that I could be restored to sanity. It is a tremendous amount of work. And they asked me very clearly, are you ready? Are you ready in step six to give these things up? And I knew what they were up against. They were going to make me do things like bite my tongue, walk away, take full responsibility, and say that it was all my fault. They were going to make me do that sort of thing. But in fact, in the end, I am. Step seven. Thanks. I'll pass. Thank you very much, Melanie C. Katie G., thanks, Julie, for the question. Katie G., your turn. 
Sorry, Leah. I was star sixing. This is Katie G. Thanks so much, everyone, for your service. Uh, really, really grateful. Um, I actually had a just a practical question. Um, definitely want to hear from Melanie and any of the other panelists. But so, family afterwards, incredibly beautiful chapter. Want to integrate it into my daily daily life, obviously. I'm just wondering if you had any um, suggestions or anything you did with the chapter itself. Like I'm hearing a lot of four and a lot of ten and a lot of six and a lot of seven, which I love. I'm just wondering how you might continue to keep the principles forefront in your mind. Because every time I get to the family afterwards, I'm like, oh, such a beautiful chapter. I've got to integrate it. Um, has there been like, have you made a a study of it in addition to your, you know, daily? work or um, how if there's any other practical application to continue to, to bring these um, concepts into your life. Thanks. Melanie, did you want to respond first to that question? Yeah, I'll be honest. When I read through this again, and I've had the opportunity to do it many times, Katie, is that I um, found that, that a lot of the way my life went was that rolled out isn't necessarily specifically addressed here. Um, I was not always the main breadwinner here. I didn't have any of those kind of financial things. I I wasn't the kind of, uh, um, I didn't, I, there were just several things I kept looking at when I was reading to find something that I could hone in on that didn't seem to be something I could resonate with. And the great thing about it, it's so broad in its delivery that it has a chance to be able to speak to, to many one of us because there's millions of people that are addicts here. So in my day-to-day -day practice, I bring everything back to the 12 steps for me for application, for transformation. And so I took this particular chapter and put it into a 12-step practice so that when things come up for me that I can work at that in that particular way. But the specific details, incorporating specific details, they didn't all apply for me anyway. I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Melanie. Any other panelists want to speak on this? This is Kathy Jo P. Go ahead. And I did a practice run with this chapter yesterday. I was quite nervous about doing this because, as I said in the beginning, I have a lot of work yet to do for healing and transformation within my family here. And as after I shared, the fellow's feedback to me was, wow, if the family afterwards literally sums up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It talks about the disease and how it affects the family. It talks about the work that we need to do. And it talks about the impact that that disease has made on the family system and the healing that happens by working these steps be in a service by bringing this message to other people, even if we are still a bit broken, that God can use us, use us. So many times along the way, a fellow said to me, you are sure going to have a story that's going to help others. And that continues to be real for me. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Kathy Jo. Thanks, Katie G, for the question. Veronica. Star one to unmute. Good morning. Thank you, Veronica, Composable Overeater and Bulimic. Uh, I'm not sure how to state the question, so I'm just going to state it. How do you deal with um, when you make your your spouse your higher power? And um, how do you not go to the food when they're not acting or doing what you want them to do? 
uh, or how do you have sanity around, you know, your spouse, your, you know, or you make them your higher power. I think someone mentioned something about they fill their God-sized hole. I have a God-sized hole, and I tend to um, let, you know, fill that with my my boyfriend. So any suggestions, I would love to hear. Thank you. That was Kathy Joe who made that reference. Uh, Kathy Joe, would you like to respond? This is Kathy Joe, and first of all, for me, I need to remember my husband, like me, is also a broken man. He has his own journey of recovery going on here, and probably as do most people, we all are humans. And um, it was not his job when he signed up to marry me to fill my God hole. And my God hole was flipping humongous. Um, so by working these steps and letting go of the food entirely, I made room for God. And again, by doing the service and continuing to show up and be in a service, which might include cleaning up dog poop, my heart, my soul continues to fill. I no longer go to bed feeling sorry for myself. I no longer go to bed mad at the world. I no longer wake up feeling like I have a chip on my shoulders and the world owes me. I wake up wondering, what can I do for this world? How can I be of service? How can I be useful? Every single day, same thing, same song, just a different day. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Kathy Joe, thanks, Veronica, for the question. Ginger C., your turn. Hi, good morning, everyone, and fabulous job to the three panelists. I love you all. This is Ginger C., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and my question for any one of you is, how do you hold the pain when you know a loved one, especially a child, is hurting in a deep way, and maybe especially from something that you have contributed to? Question. Panelists, who would like to respond to Ginger's question? Melanie here, since I don't hear somebody else. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Thanks. Um, I'm holding several at this point, and you could hear the, the, the tears bubble up when I was sharing. I never intend to cry when I share, but they're, obviously they're still close to, to my heart. And I, um, I, I don't know that I do. I, if I'm going to examine this right here, right now, on the spot in front of you all, um, it is an absolute miracle and a growth process, and it has everything to do with the, the um, daily, daily disciplines that have been poured into me by the example of those that are in fellowship before me that um, that I'm able to, I didn't know if I was going to live through this. I did not know, and I had those thoughts in my mind, and it was, left me breathless to the point of an ache in my throat. I, I just I just didn't know, and my mind was just a frantic flurry. And, and through that process, this is what I did. Um, found myself with a phone in my hand calling somebody. Found myself with a prayer in my mind, God help me, I don't know. And um, and then the other thing is that, that I think that... Um, 
that is helping to get down beyond and below what it is not, but to stay where it is and that I have feelings of sadness. I have feelings around the idea that I absolutely did horrible, horrific things to my adult son that could could very well, I am convinced, contributed to what he's going through now in many, many ways. Um, He didn't have a snowball's chance. He was raised in an environment where there was addiction and many generations back to have a a sane and useful philosophy and practical way in which to navigate the world. It's my responsibility. How do I hold that? It is never changing. Ginger, I don't believe it's ever going to change. It will be the 12 steps, the fellowship, and my higher power. And absolutely not necessarily in that order. It's a spinning. God is always at the top. But there's something interesting that's happening to me along the way now here is that that pain has sort of changed to some level of richness and humility to know who and what I am, what I'm capable of being, what I've done, but without it being damning to me. That is stunning, absolutely stunning, and that too has happened to me as a result of showing up every day to class in a room of people like you that study the guidelines that gives me access to God that wipes away the underneath that used to take me out before and without a class. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you, Ginger C., for your question. Mo H., your turn. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, Mo H., recovering compulsive eater in California. Thank you, everyone, all you three panelists, for your insights into this particular chapter in the big book. I have five children, and the and they're all adults. The youngest of my five has been estranged from the family for most of her life. She's very angry, and I have made amends to her once in a in a non-recovered state, and then once again in a recovered state. And my question is. How do I, man, I, didn't, I don't even know how to phrase it. She, I would, my heart yearns to connect with her. I really want to connect with her. And she, this isn't her, her, her way of being. And I really haven't come to accepting it. And I'm wondering if any of the three of you have any suggestions for me to work on my program around her. With that, I pass. Which panelists would like to respond? I'll jump in if no one else will. Mm-hmm. Melanie, go ahead. Uh, Kathy Joe was talking about a God-sized hole, and and um, what again? What I've learned in through experience is that in this program is that um, I was looking for myself within them to validate to 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 fill that place, and I wanted them to be something that they were not. Man, that was difficult for me. I'm dealing with that with my adult son. I want so much. I yearn so much for his particular love. So what I've learned is that um, that I was looking. They say it. In my area, I was barking up the wrong tree, <laughs> barking up the wrong tree 
for for that sort of thing or going to an empty well for that sort of thing and so um the the restoration of my sanity my thinking around that has been i, I know it's just a broken record isn't it is to continue to continue to to ask myself when that crops up when that comes up for me what is it that I'm really looking for? Take a look back. It always starts in, from me. Something was empty beforehand. Um, I'm wishing something that was not. I'm not uh, accepting reality. And the measure for that is is where am I at spiritually in my health? And to just get back. I found that I've something's kind of slipped through the cracks. Something is kind of missing because I'm ser- searching for it in that ideal again that never existed. Never existed. It was not intended to exist. And so I get to go back and do reflective prayer. I get to go back and do step work, have conversations about it, and get myself right-sized and back in balance again. So it's, just, it's just a matter of that. And, um, and slowly but surely, my higher power has um, turned me back inward and away from requiring that of my relationship with my son. And it's much more settling now, much more settling now, and accepting. You know, acceptance is the answer kind of thing. Well, that seems, you know, pretty common, but it continues to be true and more true in a, in a loving and more humble way that any disturbance is simply an untreated disease within me and that I'm looking in the wrong place to have that fulfilled. Complete, total alignment with God gives me fulfillment in all areas of my life. With that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Mo, for the question. Thanks, Mel. All right, we have time for two more questions. Who would like to pose a question? Loretta H. Loretta H. Anyone else? Marie J. Marie J. Excellent. Okay. Loretta H., go ahead, please, with your question. Good morning, everyone, and Leon and everybody on the panel, I met most of you at the convention, and I'm so grateful I could place a face to this wonderful healing uh, meeting. So my question is, um, I was hearing that most of you have been in long-term relationships, which, with God's grace, I was married yesterday for 50 years. And I also love this program as much as I love my husband because it has saved our marriage. But how do you balance? And this is because in my 11th step every night, it seems like I put attentive, more attentive to my husband in the corrective measures. And um, I just want to know how do you balance program? And as somebody always says, not become a telephone operator and um, be actual attention which is most important to my husband so that's my question and i hope it's um you know i hope i'm sharing uh, or you understand what i'm saying okay thank you everybody you've been wonderful and saved me today which panelists would like to respond i'll respond Leon B. Please, Leon. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm married and I have children. Um, and when I was going through recovery, um, going through the steps steps initially, I had to sit down and have a very open and honest talk with my wife. Um, and about she she knew that I had been she had known of OA. She knew that I was in and out of OA. 
Um, and so she didn't understand the way that I was working the program now because she saw me on the phone a lot more than ever, you know. And so it was really about having an open and honest conversation and saying, look, before I didn't really work the steps. These are the steps. This is what is required. Um, I do have people that, that I'm helping, like someone helped me. I'm helping other people, so they may call. And um, and in the beginning, it was quite annoying to her. I mean, she would give me the looks. She would breathe and roll her eyes. And and then um, I I let her in. You know, I, I let her in to hear some of some of the shares. And and it was really when she when she heard the program herself, she heard someone sharing something that I had been going through. I let her hit. I mean, it just hit her how real this thing really was. And ever since then, I've, I haven't had a problem when the phone rings or she'll say, it's Monday. Um, it's, it's, are you are you going, going to your meeting tonight? Or she knows on Saturdays I have my face-to-face. She knows Sundays I'm going to be on um, um, this meeting as well. So letting her in has, has helped a lot. But also I've learned through programs, just talking with other people, you know, I just asked her, what what would you like for me to do? How would you like for this to look? And my wife is not really all that needy. She just said, look, I just need five minutes of some your undivided attention. No phone, no television, or to just sit and, and talk. Five minutes is all she wants. Sometimes it's rubbing feet. Um, but um, it's just really being open and honest about I, I'm very honest. Just like Just as honest as I am with you all on this phone, I'm very honest with her about this condition. I'm very honest with how I work this program and how much I need this program. And then I have invited her in also on some of the morning meditation. So that helps. Thank you, Leon, for the response. Thank you, Loretta H., for the question. And our final question today comes from Marie J. Marie J, star one to unmute. Hi, thank you. Sorry. Leon, you had mentioned about how your relationship with your sons has changed, and I'd be interested if you could talk a little bit more about how you use the program um, currently, but also what was the process like when they gradually began to see this change in you, because that's a little bit where I'm living right now, and there is some sadness and grieving over my part and things that, um, you know, my estranged son or daughter, you know, seems to have some difficulty with still. So if you could talk a little bit about that, I'd be very grateful. If anybody else wants to chime in too, go ahead. Thanks. You know, this program caused me to take such a hard look at myself um, and, and the reality of what, what I had done to them. Someone asked a question about how do you carry the pain? If you, I mean, it, I mean, it hurt me to my core when I, when my son brought up the fact of some of the things that I did to him when he was growing up and I could not, I could not lie to that. Um, but working, but work, honestly, working these steps and working with others that have gone through some of the pain that, that I have gone through has really given me um, some strategy. Um, one is like what, Melanie C. said earlier, restraint of tongue, you know, and listening to them, their biggest thing was, you know, that I would always, I could always tell them what was going to happen. And I was, I, I am, I will find the, 
the most negative thing. You bring them something, I'm gonna find the most negative part of it. You know, so they would bring to, bring to me their plans. I would shoot it down. I would I would point out everything that's going to go wrong, and that would totally defeat them. I have so learned in this program with them, maybe not in other situations, but with them, I realized that I, I was tearing them down with my mouth. And so I, I had to learn to be quiet. That was one of, one of the biggest things, let them be who they are. And in this program, I'm learning about being emotionally attached. I think Herb K said, you know, when, when people say, well, you're, you're pulling my strings, I totally got that when he says, well, cut the strings. You know, you, you, and even Bill brought up about his, when he was discovered emotional sobriety, that he, his, his depression, how he felt, his well-being, it, it depended on other people's feelings or, or how they made him feel. And that was the same way with, with my children. My, my internal temperature or how I felt was based off of what they were doing and if they were following my script or if they were doing what I want. The minute I just said, you know what, these are grown men and I have to trust that the God that I've put in them is going to protect them just as this God has, has protected me all of those years. And I had to be comfortable with the fact that I, I, I did the work. I, I did the work with them. I mean, I, I, I wrote out my step now. I, I let them get it out. And I'm telling you, this thing is over time, it's been two years. O over time, our communication has changed. Our relationship has changed. I mean, being let letting them be as honest as they want to be. I mean, they're, they're grown men. They're 25 and 26, you know, and I couldn't, they're adults. I can't tell them how to, how to act, think, and feel. So really just the the tribe that I have around me, the people speaking into my life have really helped me. Restraint of tongue was, was everything. Letting them say it, letting them get it out, because that's pain. I can't deny their feelings. And, um, and that's what helped me, and, and that's, what, that's what has helped them. And our relationship, it, it, it truly has um, evolved, and I hope that. Thank you, Leon, for the response. Of course, thank you, Marie, for the question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. Thank you to our panelists, Kathy, Joe, P, Leon, B, and Melanie, C. Thanks for giving so much of yourselves this morning, pulling back the curtain and sharing how you have and continue to lay these principles down in your relationships, in your personal lives. Thank you for giving us so much this morning with your experience, strength, and hope. Really appreciate it. Today's share ID, 14,806. That's 14806. Truly touching presentation. Thank you again, panelists. And we're going to close from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you 
and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you.